I'm Matt Rogan, and this is the Playbook Podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport share pragmatic advice for leading and managing through changing times in the industry. Today, we're looking to understand how to shape and influence the cultural side of an organization. And that can feel a bit of an abstract and woolly area at first, and it's one that's certainly pretty ripe for jargon. I wanted to start with, well, what is a high-performance culture, and, and should you even want one? Describe that slightly more tangibly. You know, you can go into an organization and feel the energy, the purpose, and, and kind of the inevitability of success when you walk into some organizations and others just feel really flat. So specifically, how do you build that drive and energy in your own business? Previously, we talked to a director of sport at a school, John Denver, on what it takes to build a culture of success. And we're going to look at that today from a slightly different perspective from one of the world's leading international management consultancy firms, Oliver Wyman. They've got offices in more than 60 locations employing over 5,000 professionals, so they know what they're talking about. We're speaking to a partner in the communications, media, and technology sector, uh, and also of the organizational effectiveness practice at Oliver Wyman, Tony Simpson. Tony's held a variety of leadership and board roles in sports and media businesses in both Europe and the Middle East, advising corporates and governments on business transformation, corporate structure, and executive alignment and strategy. Hopefully you feel this is just as tangible and candid a chat as I did. But just before we start, please feel free to send me any topics you'd like covered in the pod through the rest of 2012, and I'll do my best to make it happen. You can reach me at matt at mattrogansport.com or via my website, mattrogansport.com. It's got my mobile number and stuff like that on it. That's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. Tony, hi. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. So I thought, I thought we should start really simple. Uh, in this conversation, if that's okay. So I've spent Christmas time reading and hearing an awful lot about high performance culture, listening to podcasts on my running and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not sure I'm any really any wiser what it actually is and, and how you know an organization even has one. So let's start there. What on earth is a high performance culture? Well, it's a great question to start on, Matt. And uh, there is no easy answer. I think people often use the wrong question. So, and the reason I say that is because um, in many ways, we're talking about optimal performance rather than high performance. It's impossible to have high performance at any one time. But if you've got optimal performance in an organization, they are often described as high performing companies. And let me sort of break that down a bit for you. you know, optimal performance for me is an inclusive culture. Uh, and, and an inclusive culture is an organization where I think there's psychological security and safety for the people running that organization. The reason that's important is because it allows people to be empowered and help people are happy people. You know, you often find you get less churn at these organizations that think they are high performing. It's actually, uh, it's, 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 a, it's many different components that make a high performing culture. And then empowering and having an empowering ethos is really important as well. So, Whilst you're right, high-performance culture is something. It's actually optimal performance. And in sport, we look at a team who would argue are performing quite highly at the moment. It's not my team, Birmingham, by the way. It's uh, Manchester City. Uh, but Manchester City are optimal performers. At any one time, a one of their 12 players, 11 players, could be playing brilliantly. You know, It doesn't have to be the same one at any one time. They're in this fluid state that somebody can take hold and be overperforming. While somebody might be off a bit, and it doesn't really matter. The problem you have when you look and you 
as a business, you try and strive for high performance all the time. It's stressful, it breaks people, and you're using the lens of one or two people rather than the whole company. As an industry, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because we're responsible for putting high-performing teams onto fields of play. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't make us, as, as organizations, to every part and every facet that makes up our businesses and organizations, that doesn't necessarily make us high-performing, does it? So what would your, your initial reflections be on um, how well um, sport businesses or how optimally sport businesses perform? Well, I think it's a really good question, and it's one that actually, if I take a step back a step back a bit, that, that question actually involves inclusion and diversity. And the reason I say that is because on the pitch, or on a court, or on a golf course, um, it, sport is a great leveler. It's all about merit at the end of the day, uh, and the, and and the team is made of an inclusive team with the best performers. In fact. I don't think there's a single business, a high-performing business that doesn't have an inclusive, spirit-inclusive team. But within the sports area, we can end up with, with, with some of our biggest clubs, federations, and sporting bodies are still op- optionally, and I say optionally, how they deliver their sport on the pitch, diverse. But within their boardrooms, they are the, the ones that are failing and will fail in, in the future are those that aren't diverse. And, you know... I, and by diverse, I'm not just talking about race and gender. I'm talking about, you know, experience and uh, class as much as anything. You have to have diverse thinking. You know, conflict is not a bad thing around a boardroom table. I mean, Matt, you've run businesses. I've, we've both been there. Actually, conflict actually creates people to start having to think why are they talking. You start having to challenge how people are thinking. It's very easy to have five people alight what they think the solution is because they're all comfortable with it because they'll come from a position in the world where it's come from you know i, I mentioned some of the the things i've been hearing and reading over christmas and um it's really interested by the uk media's reaction to england's men struggling in the ashes series through the winter um and sort of the collective nodding of agreement amongst principally 45 to 50 year old white men who love test cricket that England's uh, lack of performance through a specific test series was somehow a reflection of the fact that cricket wasn't working and um, yeah I just found myself thinking well you know if you were to ask my kids or you were to go into the centre of Birmingham and say well what is the success of cricket over the last 18 months one day internationals, 100, whatever it might be, mean to you. You might have totally different answers. And yet, I guess it's sort of back up your point, really, is that, you know, for, for individuals of a certain background to draw a conclusion that something is or isn't working, if they're only from one background, then it's a fairly linear and fairly hopeless conclusion. Absolutely. And it's compounded by the fact that, you know, sports, uh, as we know, is actually a content, it's a media business now as well. So how people consume that sport and what they're looking for from it is really interesting. So at the end of the Formula One season, we just saw the, the race with, uh, you know, Max Verstappen and, and, and uh, Lewis. Um, I, I, I ended up, my wife watched that for the first time, she doesn't usually watch F1. And her response was, well, I'm never going to watch this again because it's, it's cheating, it's not sport. Some people who never, some people thought this is really exciting. This is, I don't care about who wins. What, a, what, what an event. And therefore, we're in a situation where, you know, there's no right or wrong there. There is no right or wrong. Is it, it's great TV. 
uh, which ultimately supporters of content. So actually, whether it's fair or not is irrelevant. If I've got millions of people watching on a regular basis because they're interested in the protagonists is one thing versus that, that, that winning at all costs. And going back to your cricket analogy, you know, cricket is quite complex and I don't want to go in that rabbit hole for many different reasons I could do if we haven't got time to do it today. But, you know, cricket is a great example when we talk about inclusive teams. If you take, and I want to be lazy and use Yorkshire, but let's take Surrey or, or, or Warwickshire as an example. You know, cricket has actually been, you know, reasonably inclusive. Some of those teams had players from all over the world for, for, for many years. But it, as, as a sport, you know, it, it's needed it because of the different, the different attributes players bring from whether the Caribbean, whether from India, whether from Australia, whether the spinners, bowlers, catchers, shows the value of an inclusive performance within a team. It amplifies it more in cricket. A bit of a lazy vernacular to think the West Indies are fast bowlers and the <laughs> Indians can spin and the Australians can, you know, body line. But the point is, you know, people understand that that, that, that blend draws success. The, the trick for us as executives is creating that blend within the boardroom where people aren't just rewarded on tenure and what they've done through four or five years ago, because we're compounded by the fact, and COVID's driven this for all of us, that we've had to look at what we're doing, especially in sport, actually, where impact and purpose is as important in some organised areas as profit, especially for those watching the sport or competing in it or consuming it. And so we are our industry, the sport world, the sport media world, is at a real crossroads at the moment, I think. Uh, in terms of understanding what it is, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think it's the stage where actually a lot of people don't quite know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And if I were um, a chief exec, new in post, with a supportive chair alongside, what would the the one or two or three things be that I could do to to start shaking up the the sort of the, the inclusivity and diversity of thought in my organization, firstly from top down? Well, one of the first things you can do, there's a lot of um, rubbish talked about at non-execs. And what I mean by that is the amount of non-execs you can have, the tenure of non-execs. This is all made by the board itself. So when we say, well, actually, well, gosh, Tony, we'd love you on the board, but we just don't have a position. Well, who makes who makes that rule? Oh, it's our chairman. Oh, that's me. Yeah. So let's be clear about that. The other thing is is around access. COVID has been a great democratizer, actually. Having a, uh, because most of our board meetings have been on Zoom, obviously. So if I live in Carlisle, or if I live in Gala Shields, you can't say, well, actually, we can't find anybody who's got this tenure, who is slightly different to the rest of us, because they can join your board meeting whenever they want. It doesn't have to be London-centric. And actually, there's a huge workforce of women who've, who've, who've gone home and not been able to come back to work, who are available. On, on Zoom, if they're homemakers, if they want to. Men who want to stay at home and work half at home, they can do that. And then we've got different minorities and groups where people say to me, well, Tony, you know, we don't have anybody of colour on our board at Carlisle because we don't have anybody who lives near us. Well, guess what? <laughs> Use Zoom, my friend. You'll find you'll be inundated. And so if you start, so your question was, what would I be saying to, to, to the, the exec about inclusion? I'd be looking at some of the barriers to entry, which, which I've just given you a few there, and saying, how can we, we, we remove those? I'd be looking at how people are uh, monetizing, consuming our sport, and where the rights are, and what can we do around that sport, especially around shoulder content. And those listening to shoulder content for media companies is the stuff you see before and after the live event. And looking at how that can be aggregated with, with 
social media channels like Instagram, like um, like Facebook, like TikTok, etc. And and one of the problems we have on the board is also looking at people who might be under thirty joining our board. You know, as in really joining the board. And people will say yes, but they need life experience. Well, Mark Zuckerberg was running a bigger business than most of them when he was under thirty. And so is Elon Musk. And the point is, they understand how people use content and they use it in a completely different way. You know, my daughter's 18. And when I, I always ask her, can you show me what you do with Instagram? And she's like, no, go away, Dad. I'm not interested. I'm really, really interested to know how people use social media because we, as marketeers and, and people driving the products and campaigns we do, have a perception. But the reality is totally different. And if we've got somebody in the room telling us, which bits are working for us? We could save millions and millions and millions by doing something more effective. It's interesting, actually. My um, my daughter is um, is absolutely cricket obsessed, and um, she was asked to join a. I guess it's called the First Eleven. It's the Girls Cricket Club First Eleven, which um, an organisation called the Girls Cricket Club that's been developed. Um, it's a, basically to try and further the interest and the growth of the women's game. And so she's on an advisory board of 11 young women who basically are, a, are an active feed into the management team of the business to say, oh, that's a bit naff, or we wouldn't write this, or what about this? And it's, uh, and, and it's anything other than lip service. And it's hugely powerful in terms of, of actually just helping ground some fairly experienced sports execs in the hard realities of, of what new generations are, are are prepared to engage with and not i think i think it's hugely valuable and i think you know it, it's a real well any organization that's not doing that has got a problem coming up the line anyway whether they like it or not because 50 percent of the world's population is under 25 and guess what they'll make they'll be making decisions based on impact and purpose exactly I, i'm one of the other things oh, i keep harping on about, on about my christmas i'm only half back in the it, no, no no don't worry only half back in the in the working world uh, but I showed the kids Jerry Maguire as well um, through Christmas, and and it's dated a little bit. But in some in some instances, I found myself looking at it, thinking, you know, some areas of our industry really haven't moved on that much. Um, and I sort of put that alongside that that famous phrase around, you know, the, your culture is defined by the worst behaviour that you actually tolerate. Um, if, if you think about the behaviours that senior leaders in sport have traditionally gone with um, and maybe we're having to draw some harder behavioral lines now than we have before uh, would you have any counsel in that regard yeah it's a look it's a really tough one some of the best performing sports organizations whether they are federations media groups media houses are are run by people who grew up in the industry when it was you know chinos and oxford shirts and, and we used to have a saying well you and i both in the industry a long time <laughs> the girls were babes and the guys were dangerous yeah and people grow up in that world where where it was that's what we do that jerry Maguire world and guess what it's totally not right now and the problem yeah. is a lot of those people have been hugely successful and are venerated and so their their behavior is is ignored and i and it, you know and i'm using this to make a point but Younger people now feel they don't have a voice to, to change things that are so obvious to young people, but not so obvious to us. And when it involves money and big money, which sport is, so sport has grown up being, you know, a, 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 an addendum to the advertising budget, to being the, the fulcrum of the advertising budget and content certainly is. Um, 
the biggest challenge organizations like mine have with clients now, and especially in the space of media and sport, is going to an organization and creating an inclusive, meritocratic culture that will allow everybody to have a voice, which in turn will allow the organization to put its best foot forward. And the reason that's important is because sport now is a content business. It's not a performance business. And if you don't understand what your market wants and need, you're going to be out of, <laughs> out of work very quickly. And if you've only got the same five people in your organization, you've been there since the late 90s, you know, providing the guidance on content, you've got a problem. And so, you know, th- there is a there is an analogy that I use, and that is, you know, we have, as you mentioned on the starters program, I'm part of our organizational effectiveness unit. But good organizational effectiveness drives effective culture, you know, and if culture drives performance of an organization, and that's a fact, and the performance drives the success, whether fiscal or other. So it's all linked, and you can't have one without the other. And so there's a slow, um, there's a slow strangling in many ways, as some organizations we know very well, and are trying to grapple with how do they change this tanker round as an organization. Uh, and be relevant to a, to an organization where they could be replaced like that by an app, <laughs> which can happen, you know, which is which is a reality, yeah. And so it's a tough one. It seemed to me um, with those organizations that I was involved in in working with at Two Circles, also in my former guys is running a running an OD um, leadership development business that the single biggest thing you could do to change things quickly as a leader was start to role model the behaviors you were looking for, right? Because this is a tanker and, and yet you as the, the ultimate leader of the organization, you know, if you just react to some tough feedback a little bit differently, or maybe a little bit more explicit in where you feel like the gaps in your organization are, or call out some things that you've noticed around the organization that you feel particularly positive over the course of the last week or things you were um or some mistakes that were made actually that you're you know wanting to prize the fact that people tried stuff and innovated and maybe it didn't come off you know you can you can move although it is an oil tanker you can get some 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 movement pretty quickly but you have to role model the change you're looking for as an individual otherwise it's dead in the water and, and you're right, it is about change. So I think the number is about 150 is the optimal amount of people where you as a leader can have an influence on and know and nurture. And we've both driven business. When it gets over 150, you can't use your specific personality. You have to put checks and balances in to run that organization and drive it to scale. Uh, and when I say 150, I'm talking about know people's names, you know, how's, how's Gene, how's Fred, etc. The trick for many organizations, how do you keep that how do you keep that core essence and, and culture and scale the organization in a way that doesn't lose the thing that got you where you were in the first place? And this is what we're talking about now. And I think the, the, the way, one of the ways to, to, to do that is by, by your own behavior, but also using allies, allies within the organization. And that's all about trust and empowering people to do what they need to do to get things done. And ultimately knowing you know, media and sport is an interesting area because unlike financial services, and unlike risk and regulation, we could fail fast and learn and move on. And therefore, we should harness that and use it. And we do. The good companies do do that. 
you know, I think, you know, there'll be more failures with, with, with and, and your, your business and my old businesses than there would ever be at a challenger bank because they can't afford to fail. And you, but it's how do you learn without failing? And actually, how do you reward that and, and, and look at, not reward the failing, but how do you deal with it and learn from that failing? And this is all part of and modern managers you speak. So when you look at people coming into our sector from other sectors and there is a big transformation going on, as a lot of these organisations are scaling, one thing that people need to have coming into a, a content-driven organisation is is that flexibility to to where everybody has a voice and know that everything's not going to be right every time, because otherwise you'll 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 strangle everybody else's capability and creativity, and you'll end up with a product, whether it's a sporting product or a or a media product or a physical product within our industry that it, that is pretty rigid and as a low low shelf life. And I always remember actually. Uh... So I was I spent four years at MTV, um, which contrary to at the day was actually a music, principally a music and entertainment channel as opposed to purely content sort of entertainment content. And I remember very well a situation where I felt age twenty eight, twenty nine, whatever I was when, when I left the organization, I, I was getting too old to be close to the customer and the audience. And that was a real issue for my career progress. Actually, because um, that organization knew that if it weren't close to the customer, the audience, then it would fail and fail fast. And the leaders in that organization were fantastic at um, understanding and embracing failure in individual projects or individual programs. I remember um, there's an apocryphal story. I I think it is true of of a cameraman who was out doing a news shoot one day um, at a famous rock star's house, the house was absolute carnage. The the uh, as is quite normal. The um, the family was utterly dysfunctional, but quite funny. He rolled the cameras because they didn't mind. Came back, knocked on his boss's door, and that became the Osbournes. But but the, uh, it was just the fact that the the culture the culture at MTV was such that the boss's door was open, was prepared to look at a bit of random tape, and listen to a cameraman that that normally in, in a hierarchical organisation would have had the time of day with a senior leader, but was just prepared to go with it. And, and that is a great story. And it's a great segue into the next bit, Matt, actually, which is, you know, learning from these behaviours often creates the new product, as you say, of, of the organisation going forward. And it's the same in music, which is creative, which is a great idea. You know, if you listen to a jazz musician, if you listen to somebody, some of the greatest songs, I think it was you 2 when they are talking about how they wrote uh, When To Stand Still, you know, well, she was up, that song anyway. Um, oh, I know, yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yep. That starts with messing around and, and the drummer starting and the bass player thing, I'm not going to bother and coming in late. And they go, no, no, coming late again. And, and building and building it. And that, but they shouldn't have done it. If they'd have done the right thing and been the CEO, you know, from a, from a rigid organization that had started all together, finished one, two, three, counted them in and whatever. But those are the songs that mature and last. When you look at businesses retrospectively, you think, God, why is that company so good? Why you think, oh yeah, they were very brave. Actually, sometimes they were lucky, but they weren't lucky. What they did was when they had bad luck, they used they analyzed what went wrong and thought, this is the best bit that works. And having the confidence and your chair and the other thing is you need a chairman. And if you're we've both been CEOs, but if you're a CEO, you do need a board and a chairman who's going to back you. 
because we can think like this ourselves all that but if you're bored it's just like no no we, we hear what you're saying you're going to be polarized so you do need that blend all the time of the right board the right people and that's where your you know that's where your advisory board comes in with your 30 year olds as much as 80 year olds on it in terms of the um in terms of the mechanics of of bringing some of this uh i guess new breed type organization to bear um if you if you look at the people side um you know it's a fairly established sort of hr people focused way of doing stuff that involves organizational structures performance management succession planning yada 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 um are there things that you're seeing that are changing quickly in that regard that enable a more diverse um, set of thinking and a more creative set of thinking across some of your clients? One of the mistakes boards make after somebody's been in a job four or five years is they go back to the recruiters or the headhunters or to themselves, their HR departments, and get the old CV, you know, the old job description for the CEO. Well, five years ago, the UK looked very different to what it does now. So a CEO for any media or sport-led business would have a totally different job spec to they would do now. So any organization needs to have a reset and think now, where are we in the market? What is what is happening and what skill sets do we need? And if we can't haven't got them, not what one individual might not have those skill sets, what skill sets do we need to 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 provide the right data and the right information for our new our new leadership? Once you've got all of that, then you start looking at what the role is. But the most important thing nowadays, and, and I, I was very lucky last month to interview a, a guy called Richard Davini. And Richard Davini is an ex-US Navy SEAL. In fact, he's the commander of SEAL Team 6, and he wrote a book called Mind Gym. It was about attributes, not skills. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is because nowadays, great leaders in our space are not hard on skills, are hard on attributes. And it's the attributes that will, how you perform under stress, how you perform through change, how you manage people, and how you manage failure are attributes. They're not skills. You can teach skills. So I can teach, I could say that all of us could go to a business school for six months and come back. But actually, as Mike Tyson said, you know, any of my strategy or any of my training for anyone who fights me goes out the window the first time I punch them in the face i.e. it's what happens to our businesses, it's where attributes kick in. Am I going to stand up and do my job? And can you teach old dogs new attributes? Yeah, attributes are inherent. So we have children, and both of us, we discussed it earlier on the top of the ground. When my, when my kids were learning to ride a bike, one of them would get on, ride around the block, sorry, try and ride around the block four or three times, I'm doing that again, might do it in a year's time. Other child, five years old, would get on, and on and on all day till they'd learn to ride the bike. The reason like, those are attributes, not skills. If one decides they always want to go and do something, one doesn't. There's no right or wrong attribute because a child who fell off and came back in a year's time is quite is quite uh, detailed and conservative and looking at different things. But the one who went on and on and on in some instances is an attribute you might need in a certain type of job. So I believe you, you can teach you, you can teach skills, but attributes are inherent. Does that infer then that in an industry that's changed so quickly your sense would be if we are say our chino wearing 50 year old in charge of an organization then it's time to hand the baton over no i think it's time to use your attributes rather than and, and de-learn some of the stuff you've had in the, most of your life lean on your lean on your gut if you've still got it <laughs> Where, where's the where's the best place or what's the best way to do that 
because what you're what you're saying is sort of unlearn some things that have helped you get to where you are, and that's not an easy yeah. place to be. It's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. Look, it's a really hard thing to do, and you need to be psychologically safe to do that because you know, you can't do an environment where you have a sales meeting every week and you say to the team, you know, or, or to shareholders, guess what? <laughs> I know numbers are down, but trust me, we're going. To, it doesn't work. Well, it, it needs to be done in isolation in some cases through R and D. When I talked about, you know, when we talked about learning and failing fast as a leader. Pick a team to do that and think about where the future might go. And keep trying and trying and trying to be confident enough to do that and learn those skills. When I started in this industry, I started as a direct marketing specialist. You know, we used to have a magazine called Precision Marketing. I could talk all day long about you know data and clusters and things like this. And that actually still relevant now. But the point is, then it went away, and I worked in you know partnerships and then to sports marketing, etc., and then strategy to where you are today. Everybody keeps learning and the world's changing so much and how people consume data, how people consume content and sport, et cetera, is changing. So one of the things that will keep those leaders in place is natural curiosity. And curiosity is an attribute. And curiosity aligned with leadership and aligned with high EQ as well as IQ will keep you, keep you running a company if you, for as long as you want, I would argue. Maybe we could talk about change a little bit. Um, you brought it up earlier on. So I, I'm assuming that Oliver Wyman are brought in to look at a significant change for big corporate organizations, sporting, media, and otherwise. And how do you look at the people dimension of that? Will you sort of chunk it out and look at it separately, or is it all in together with strategic direction of the organization, financials and fiscals, the people that are needed to deliver on the strategy you know how do you look at that and how does that lead you to think the, about how sport should handle its culture well for a lot of the organizations we're working for as you rightly say are global sort of you know, billion dollar 100 million dollar organizations where uh we are we are we might specifically be looking at a people angle so we won't be looking at some of the other areas we're looking at we are from an organizational effectiveness we'll be looking at how can their greatest assets in many case organizations which they are if they're professional service organizations or financial service organizations, other people. So how can we make people more effective? How can we utilize people as organizations go through transformation? How can we create an environment where people can perform at their best if an organization is going through a merger or acquisition and use that as an opportunity to look at best practice from a digital perspective and technology perspective? And also, how do we help organizations retain and keep their best staff, but most importantly nowadays, make them attractive to new talents coming onto the market. One of the key issues that um, major traditional financial services, whether it's legal firms, whether it's accounting firms, is, is getting young talent out. Traditionally, you would have people coming out of Oxford, driving into these organisations, wanting to work there. Now people are just saying, well, what are you doing about climate change? Uh, what are you doing about inclusion? I don't want to work there. Right? My, my room is not to make money. I want to do something that's making a difference to the world. And if these organisations can't authentically demonstrate that they're doing that, they don't want to work there. They won't work there. And, that, and they're assets of the people. So it's, it's not just going to an organisation and shaping its career. And it's about authentically doing it. And I always have a saying, which is you can't be what you can't see. So if I go into a sports organization, I'm a young Asian or I'm a young person of, of color or, 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 or otherwise, and the board is all white male as I look up. My point is, if you go into an organization 
where your the management, the senior management don't reflect the values that that organization is putting on elsewhere, it's going to be doubly amplified. And actually, people aren't stupid. They just won't want to work there anymore. You know, and, and so the issue we have, and it's a really strange issue with some of that, is how do you promote or do you just promote on merit, which I agree with, by the way, but how do you promote on merit to a to a population that don't, people always say to me, Tony, there's no pipeline. So this is what you say to me when I was in, we've had this conversation before, you know, I would hire more people of colour or more women into this role if there was a greater pipeline. Well, actually, that's, that's a bad perception. And so the reality is, as we're saying to an organisation, how do we how do we make ourselves more attractive to the people we want to join, not the other way around? Uh, and that's and that is is uh, the, the way to to drive inclusion on your board. And the reason inclusion on your board is important is because nobody, want, as I said before, nobody will want to work there. For an organisation doesn't feel like the university or the college these people have just left. It would just be odd. My, one of my favourite lines from um, the pods we, we ran last year was a lady called Claire Harvey, who's inclusion leader at Vodafone. And she said, she's uh, very challenging, but we, we did, the, um, did the conversation in the stands, actually, at the Oval, which is the archetypal sort of white male cricket ground. And she just said, look, you know, we're not looking for unicorns. These people exist. You just have to be smarter in terms of the way you, you, you build a, a proposition and build a business that's going to be of attract you know, going to be attractive for them and to them. You know, I used to, I, I just stepped down, but I was a member of the, I was a, an advisory board member at the Black Cultural Archives in, in, in the UK. And at the same time, I was working for a major broadcast organisation in Europe. And they say to me, Tony, we just don't, we, we just can't get a pipeline of young, black, creative talent. Where are they? I'd be like, what? And at the same <laughs> in the afternoon, I could be at the, cultural archives and say, Tim, we've got all these young kids who are desperate to do something, but they just can't find the opportunities. And what it showed me very clearly with is a disconnect in terms of perception. So these young people might have thought applying to join these organisations is, is not even worth me applying. And B, that, that they were looking in the wrong places, they being the young people of, of colour and also the organisations were looking to, to hire. And so where do you go? What is in you? And it could be in social. I've advised people before, you know, going whether it's using a different, you know, young young black kids people don't use LinkedIn. It's just not it's just not something they're taught to do as they leave sixth form in the shires. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> so we can't find any of them. Well, guess what? No, you can't. No, exactly right. So take it as read that these organisations, as they move slowly from governing bodies, um, which is a term I don't like very much, into into content organisations and, and social change delivery organisations. Um, change is a given. I was listening to, a, to a, an interview a couple of days ago with a guy called Ben Francis, who's CEO at Gymshark, and, and he talked about, um, I think he said, change readiness and resilience needs to be built into the DNA of my team. And I thought, well, that's a lovely line, but, but I, how do you actually do that you know how do you whether you're talking about a top team or you're talking about an organization of many units of 150 people how do you actually create a sort of change readiness in an organization for the for the bumps that lie ahead can you well but to say i don't think you can build in resilience is the first thing because you're building in stress tolerance this is another way to look at that and is that a good thing to be doing i would argue it's not um i think if people are happy and empowered they're much more resilient 
And so, so I think you start from that perspective. And it goes back to the first thing we talked about is building an organization that has optimal performance. So optimal performance can be uh, an organization with 10,000 people that's working well, sparking off individually. Uh, as much as, you know, a startup as you and I have done in our lives with, you know, the fun days are when the company's 30 people strong, actually, where you're not quite worried about the money coming in. Yeah, uh, you've got that and you like everybody because you haven't picked them all, you've interviewed them all, you know them all. Uh, and you don't really have shareholders on your back. It's, you know, at that point, you think, do we need to get bigger? Um, that's, you could argue that is optimal performance. It's scaling that, you know, uh, as a pay. And, and, you, and you, we would say, in essence, oh, that, that is a high performing organization. That people would say, you wouldn't say it, people would say to you, oh, there, I remember two circles when you started. You, you High performing organization. Actually, you're performing optimally. You were happy. You were on it. You knew what was going on. You knew what your pipeline was like. You knew what your debtors list was. All this sort of stuff. Because you had somebody who's good at chasing money in those days. You knew them. You know, and you'd laugh about it. You'd go, what have you got in for today? We've got, we got it down to, you know, we've got our debtors down to 28 days. Brah. You know, we've got all these sort of stuff was when you had your hand on the tiller. And how do you replicate that? Make everybody feel they are part of the solution. Rather than you know, rather than the rather than the cog in the wheel, it's, it's making the business better for the performers and, and for the management. That's bang on. Actually, actually, when we got down to twenty eight days, uh, I knew I could go home because I was married to the <laughs> the CFO. <laughs> so got his text saying you are allowed home from the office today. Um, and I do remember, I do remember actually our thirtieth hire um, was uh, number thirty was the point where we'd said, well, look, we we're going to need some kind of an ops manager capability. Because it, we're just getting to the point where we need a bit of support, and and um, I've now proved that I'm capable of managing a meeting diary of more than about six people. And um, I walked out of our office to, to do the first interview for an operations manager, having just dropped the printer cartridge I'd taken out of the, of the photocopier, and the bottom of my trousers was just a kind of a universe of dodgy rainbow colours. <laughs> to the point where I kind of think, you know, it, it's great. It, we are performing optimally, but I could really use a, an ops manager right now to make sure that continues to be the case. Anyway, um, if there were a couple of things, Tony, that the Anyone coming off this call on the back of fairly challenged last couple of years, um, a financial environment that's pretty hard to call, um, with a with an amount of time, nevertheless, to to think about um, how they make their organisations perform optimally through the course of the next um, twelve to eighteen months, in particular in respect of culture. You know, what two or three things would you advise anyone, whether they got ten people or ten thousand people? Have a think about. I think people need to embrace the change because there is there's real world change. And by embrace that change, you know, look at it and think, okay, we are use the old subject, we are where we are. But actually, look at what your organisation is. Don't feel, don't take on those added pressures. Embrace them and and in, and go again, as I say, to endure that. I think the other thing is is to value your people and, and make sure that your people. Are, are because people have choices nowadays in a way that they didn't have before for all the reasons we talked about earlier in this in, in on this call about movability. So uh, uh, value people and actually think long and hard about what the purpose the organisation is uh, and what its impact is going to have because and trust and trust yourself and it, and it sounds a bit woolly and it sounds a bit nebulous in terms of what I've just said because I could come down with you some some you know and give you some uh, you know some 
guidelines in terms of what organizations are doing. But if we're looking at organizations are from 10 to 10,000 people, it, it is that because change is difficult and nobody likes change, whether, whether, you know, none of us like change. I think you need to, uh, as a manager, you need to be, you need to embrace risk, but learn from it. But, but, you know, risk with a, with a small, small R, trust, trust the people, your people, the people who are working with you and train. Because what happens is we, 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 you know, we train for certainty and the great, great thing is we educate for uncertainty. Okay, Tony, so we, we've got a world now where it's a pretty challenging environment for any CEO. We've got um, a financial environment with interest rates and inflation and, uh, and things that nobody can pick uh, in terms of what's going to happen in the next 12 months or so. We've still got uh, some concern over where, where we're going to be with COVID and what's going to be in front, of, in front of actual people watching an actual stadia and not. Um, so there's, there's vulnerability and concern all over the place. And yet any CEO worth their salt is going to have a little bit of time to think about what the next, um, part of their journey looks like and how they create a culture that's going to be optimal for the next part of the, uh, of the century. What two or three things should they think about in that regard for the time they've got, where do they focus? I think they focus on their people. First and foremost, because people are, as anything, COVID has taught anything, are the lifeblood of an organization. They make sure they've got the right people uh, within the organization, a reflection of, of the marketplace they're working in. You know, the world's getting smaller. We've got uh, a lot of organizations are internationalizing, whether you're a 10 man business or a 10,000 person business. I think you look at, um, you look at the, the you're, you have to be a bit prepared to be vulnerable. Uh, as as a business, in order to 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 harness and ride the change that's happening, you know, um, and to get things right, you you also need to to have an open mind and open view to the changes that are happening in society around impact and purpose, because those are going to be important to your clients as much as to yourselves, especially in this world of sports. And then you need to, you know, things. It's changing so quickly, Matt. If you look at, you know female sports, you look at what's happening in disabled sports at the moment. And yet, you know, we talk about inclusion in football. And yet in 2022, we don't have a single black referee in the Premier League. So all these sort of things, when you take a step back and start thinking, oh, we've done it, nowhere near it. So as a leader in sport, what can you do to make changes? How do you make them? And how do you become credible? And so the final thing, it's you're utilizing your EQ as much as your IQ. And it's looking at attributes as well as skill sets and not throwing out of the window all that institutional memory we've all built up over years of, of, of working in our industry. Uh, and that's really important because people that, you know, you and I have, have been in, in, in and around sport and media for, for, for many years. The generation before us, when they left our industry, didn't have the challenges. They wouldn't be having the conversations we're having now. It was a nice watch playing golf, and you thought, "I think, well, that's it. That's great stuff." You know, I built up company X, Y, and Z. It's a completely different world now. Legacy is important, and organisations. And, and another thing I will say, which I think is true, you know, at COP twenty six this year, um, it was the business leaders that were driving a lot of the change, rather than the governments. You know, and if you think about what Marcus Rashford is doing, and Lewis Hamilton is doing, and and some of the great tennis players are doing, and and, and what happened with 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 cricket 
you know, the average man in the street knows more about sport than they do the government. In fact, most people can name the board of their football club more than they can name the board of the government. So whether we like it or not, sport and sport, media and entertainment has a disproportionate role in people's lives. And as a business leader in our sector, it's incumbent on us to try and make things better. Spot on. Um, I'm a big fan, actually, of the uh, Adelman comms work, uh, the looks of trust. What is it that causes anyone to trust in someone or something? And Edelman suggests that you have to believe um, that someone or something is both ethical and competent in order to trust them. Uh, and we do not believe currently in North America or, or, or Western Europe that any of NGOs, um, the media, governments, are both and corporate or corporates are both ethical and competent, but the closest to that top right box in the two by two is corporates right now. No, absolutely right. And it's really interesting. So you look at your average CEO, and it came back, we talked about succession planning earlier. I I know, you know, um, clearly we, we, we're privileged in our, in our daily job to talk to quite a few of them who, who run some of the biggest financial or, or professional services groups. They're all people who would have a deep conversation about climate, race gender, they have to, it's their day job. And so the biggest change, as you said earlier, as a CEO, is understanding and learning in that space. Because if you don't, you've got a problem. You, in fact, you're, if you don't, you're blind. And won't last long. So, so listen, with that in mind, I'm going to hit you with the, uh, the final question, um, which is to sum up your main message from the pod in, in 10 words or less, which given I asked you for uh, for two or three recommendations to a chief exec and you gave me an action list of five or six is, is maybe a challenge. Where where'd you come out? I'll be a bit lenient on 10 if that helps. Blimey, yeah, please do. I hadn't even thought about this one. This has just caught me on the, on the hop now. So look, I think number one is um, the preparing for uncertainty as a leader over the next few years and having the resilience and the and the the psychological security to actually trust yourself in terms of what you're doing with the organisation, because nobody really knows what's where the where the world is going and what we're doing. I I think another thing would be around optimization rather than rather than as we I think you mentioned when we started, uh, you know, high performance culture. I'd be looking at optimal performance which will in turn create high-performance culture. I would be looking at the whole area of valuing attributes alongside skills, both for yourself and for those people who work around you. And I'd be looking at transformation of an organisation, the transformational culture, creating a culture of diversity that drives performance. If you don't, if you're, if you're inclusion and diversity culture is not driving performance it's not doing its right job it needs to drive performance in the way that teams drive performance on the pitch and i think we use that as an example when we're talking about cricket having a spinner a bowler etc so you've got the whole if you like your whole uh your, your whole ensemble in your, in your backpack i think with an organization especially in our area of sport and media you need to have a an inclusive thinking within your board that inclusive thinking could be 12 middle-aged white males. We've all had very different lives, by the way. You know, but but nominally it will be people who look different, speak differently, and come from different parts of the world. 
So, okay. Go on, go on. Give me one more. I'm near. I, I'm trying to do the 10 for you as we speak. So give us one more and I'll see if I can come up with it. Last one, I think is around impact and purpose. So valuing impact and purpose within your organization alongside profit. So impact, purpose, and profit, and, and, and empowering everybody to have a voice. Okay. Wow. So, so how about this? So build resilience and diversity to drive the necessary impact and performance is 11. How's that? Oh, well, I'll take that. But that is exactly what I would say, yeah. <laughs> well, I got, I came out with it, so I'm bound to I'm bound to give it to us. So, look on on that bombshell. We're we're one over the <laughs> we're, we're one over the top. It's not bad for the end of the day. Yeah, yeah it's, absolutely, and and completely off the cuff. I think we'll give that to ourselves. So, listen, listen, Tony. Thanks ever so much for for taking time. I know you're extremely busy and working on a number of pretty head scratching problems right now. So, thank you ever so much for for your time and effort. No, there's a, no problem, Martin. We'll, uh, we'll hopefully meet over a beer when, we, when we're allowed to. It'd be good to catch up with you anyway and face to face. Thank you for having me. The Playbook Podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. To explore the library and find out about the Playbook Labs residential executive training programme, head to sportspromedia.com/slash playbook.